the Lord um, pointed something out for me this week, which I was incredibly grateful for, and that's going to be sort of the meat of what I share with you guys. I mean, um, if you've never had an opportunity to, to be up here to preach, um, just know that the the person up here is usually just sharing with you what God taught them this week. And so God taught me some stuff, and I'm just going to share with you. Um, and so that's what I'm really excited about. And it's this idea, and I don't know why, but I've never thought about the difference between the words um, you see, uh, forgiveness and justification. And so the, the, we have a lot of words. When we think about our salvation, there's all of these things that are going on. We've been justified. We've been sanctified. We've And, and so... But a lot of the times, in my mind, I just I hear these big words, and I was like, ah, I just kind of lump it all in together. Like, salvation includes all of these things, and I never take the time to think about the difference between them. And so this week, the Lord did something really, really cool in showing, just pointing out the difference here. And so, and it reminded me, I just watched this documentary, um, you know, about Hillsong, and I think it's... Anyway, it was really sad, right? This very prominent church with a lot of influence and created a lot of good worship music, and they have churches all over the world. And while we may disagree with them theologically in a lot of ways, like I still would consider them brothers, right? And so, and I was sad to see that this. It was mainly focusing on this pastor in New York City, um, and he had had an affair, right? In the, and he got kind of let go, and and so all of this stuff happened. And I'm watching it and just thinking. But there, there is this really interesting sort of saving grace when I'm watching this. They do a lot of interviews with this guy who's a pastor, and he just fully owns his mistakes, right? He, yes, I did all of these things. This was a horrible thing to do, and I, and I fully agree that I should be removed from the church. And just all of these things that I didn't expect because he was in a big church, like 10,000 people there. Um, and then the thing that I really didn't expect, and they don't reveal it to you as you're watching it until kind of the very end, is that his wife stuck by him. They didn't get a divorce. She forgave him, and they were working on their marriage, and they're trying to repair this relationship. And it's a beautiful thing, right? Even in the midst of some of the the worst sins that his wife was willing to stand with him. But there's one small part about this documentary, way towards the end, um, and they're interviewing him, and he's talking about it, and then she, his wife is saying, yeah, um, forgiveness is happening, and we're working, we're restoring it. And she's like, but... I intentionally leave these books around the house, like what to do when you've, like, when you've been cheated on or how to overcome adultery. And then they immediately like, pan over to the husband and he says, I don't know if it's ever going to go away. Like, it's, they're kind of joking, but they're kind of not. But like, that's what forgiveness looks like in that sort of really horrific sin that happened that, that did a lot of damage to their relationship. And I looked at that and I think, yes, that's true. Like, I, I don't know how long that would go on, but like that's what forgiveness looks like. But what would it have been, what would it have looked like if he had been justified and not just forgiven? What if there had been accusations against him, but they, found, they were found to be untrue? And he had never done this, right? And he was justified in him saying, I didn't do that. Would the consequences, would the relationship look differently between him and his wife? Absolutely. Those books wouldn't be around, right? There would be no, maybe not none, but there would, there would be far less stress. There would be far less conflict in that relationship. And it got me to thinking, like the Lord doesn't just forgive us, but he justifies us. And that is a different thing. It's a different word with a different meaning. And so we're going to see that this morning. And we're going to, I hope that you're going to 
get a little gym, like that you're going to be able to experience the love of God at a deeper level, recognizing that God doesn't just forgive, but that he actually justifies us, and that there's a deeper level of connection that we have with the Lord. Um, and so that's what Paul is talking about. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, so this last week we ended with this dilemma, right? So Romans 3, um, we saw two things were happening. Number one, we are under sin, right? That means we are under its control. It has power over us. Like, I mean, without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit, it has complete power over us. We are not able to do anything that is not sinful. We are under it. It has control over us. And then the second thing we saw is that we are under the law. And those two things together make for a very scary, dangerous situation. Because the law says... If you disobey God, you deserve to die for that. And we are under sin, and we are under the law at the same time. And these two things are working to the point where when we look at it and honestly look at ourselves, we say, well, then I have no hope. What can I do? I'm under sin. It's got control over me. The law is making statements, and it's making demands because of my sin. What on earth can I possibly do to get myself out of this predicament? It reminds me of like in, I feel like every superhero movie ever, right? Somebody falls out of a building somehow. All of us, we like, I've never even had any threat of falling off of like 50-story buildings. But somehow, in every movie, right, they all fall. And they're all falling, and they're just completely hopeless. Like they're just at a free fall. And if Batman or Superman or Spider-Man, whoever, if they don't come in and save them, that person is doomed. There's nothing they can do to save themselves. They're just in a free fall to their death. If somebody doesn't intervene, they're done for. And that's us. In our sin, we're free falling 50 stories and we have nothing. We can't stop it. There's nothing we can do. If God doesn't intervene and do something, we're in a lot of trouble. And that's kind of where we left it, right? That's where Paul left it at the end of the last section. We're under sin. We're under law. And I was reading this week, Martin Luther says this is the most important paragraph in the New Testament. I, maybe. I don't know, right? I mean, he's a smart guy, much, much smarter than me. So I take it, I, there's, a, there's a decent chance that that is right. Listen to this, right? If that's our predicament, we're under the law, we're under sin, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Separately. You see, we're under this, we're under this shadow of death and hopelessness and falling with nothing that we can do. But now God has manifested his righteousness apart from that law that is holding us down, that is condemning us for our sin. It's not the law's fault, fault it's, it's our fault. We are the ones who have sinned, and the law is just saying this is the demands that God has made. But now God has given us his righteousness apart from that. That is huge. There's the hope, right? Okay, so we read this. Now there's something. What's coming? Now Paul is quick to tell us. He's not pushing the law aside. He's not saying, well, the, the law was plan A. Like God intended for people when he gave the law at Mount Sinai that everyone to be able to read that and be like, oh, if I had only known, now I will follow everything. I just didn't know. I didn't know what you wanted me to do. That's why I'm a sinful person. Now that I have the 600 plus laws, now I'm going to be able to live perfectly. That wasn't the intention, right? That's not what God was doing when he gave the law. He gave the law so that the people would recognize how sinful they actually are. 
You see, if there's no speed limit sign up and you're driving 60 miles an hour, you don't know. But just, just because you see the speed limit at 40 doesn't mean that you drive it, right? It just, well, I'm still driving 60, but now I know how bad I'm doing, right? Before, you just didn't, well, I don't know how fast I'm supposed to go. I'm just going to drive however fast I want. It, you're speeding regardless whether you know the speed limit, but now you know how bad you are, right? That's what's happening. God gives them the law, and they see, this is how bad I am. That was not plan A. Well, they, they screwed that up, right? They're, they were not able to follow the law at all, so I guess I better come up with plan B. I, and then he sent Jesus. Jesus was plan A from the beginning of history. Genesis 3, right? The, the, first, the first proclamation of the gospel, when they're in the curses, right? And God says to Eve, look, your, the seed, your seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. That is the first mention of the gospel. From the very beginning, Jesus was plan A. It took a long time before he came, but that has always been God's plan. So Paul says, look, it's not that we're just dismissing the law. We're not ignoring the prophets. We're not saying, well, the law is now worthless. We're saying somebody has come and manifested righteousness apart from it. In other words, Jesus lived a life perfectly adhering to that law. The thing that Israel and nobody else on the planet could do for all of human history Someone has done it, and his name is Jesus Christ. So where is that righteousness being manifested? Right, that's what he then tells us. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction. So it's not as if God looked at Israel and said, okay, I'm going to finally make you the nation that you have been called out to be. He doesn't remove sin or unrighteousness from his chosen people. They are as sinful as the Greeks. They are as sinful as all of every other nation, right? In all of human history, Israel has been just as sinful. They don't become perfect. God's manifestation comes through Christ Jesus. Now hear this. Through Jesus Christ alone. Not Muhammad. Not Joseph Smith. Right? None of those other people. L. Ron Hubbard. All these people who have created cults. The righteousness of God is manifested in Christ alone. It was revealed in him. And it is by faith in Jesus that we have been saved. That's it. There's no debate necessary there's no like well maybe we can we can grab like we can we can shake hands over the fence with our neighbors and like well let's find some commonality so that we can not condemn the mormon church that sits a hundred yards away they are condemned because they find their manifestation of righteousness in somebody who is not righteous joseph smith is not where god manifested his righteousness in jesus christ alone that is it there is no discussion. There is no compromise. Look, we can compromise on a lot of things. We can have good discussion on theological issues. But this one, we will stand on as a church without question. God's manifestation of his righteousness comes through Jesus alone. It is what defines us. It's not by works. It's not by anything else but faith in Christ and the work that he accomplished. Now this argument, this idea right here that we, have, that we have salvation through Jesus by faith alone 
This is where the Reformation came from. This is what it comes out of, this argument. I think that's why, because if you know much about Martin Luther, right, nailing the 95 Theses, standing up to the Roman church, like his life being threatened multiple times because he's willing to stand up to Rome, which arguably is the most powerful thing in the world in the 16th century, right? The Pope had more power than any king on earth, and Martin Luther is willing to stand up to them and say, you have said... In the Council of Trent, in the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church said, if you believe in salvation by faith alone, you are an apostate. You are not allowed to be a member of this church. We do not consider you a follower of Christ. And Martin Luther said, where on earth are you getting this from? When I read my Bible, it says salvation by faith alone. And Martin Luther stands up to that church, right? He stands up to the most powerful thing in the world, and he says, it absolutely is by faith alone. Now, I'm sure most of you know many Catholics who believe in Jesus and who are saved. I'm not saying that all Catholics are not saved by any means. I know lots of Catholics who, who, would, who would agree with this statement. But the Catholic Church as an entity, this is their statement. That you are not saved by faith alone. That you have to be saved through works. That is not the gospel. That is not the Bible. Now I bring this up because there is this discussion and it's ongoing. And it's within this church and it's within Baptist life and this idea that when we talk about being reformed, there is this stigma that goes into that word. And I'm telling you right now that to be reformed is to follow what, what we're seeing in Martin Luther. That we are willing to reform. That no matter what, you, Martin Luther made a really interesting statement when he when he nails these 95 theses he says every gener every generation of christian must defend the gospel we must defend it that's what it means to be reformed that no matter where the threat comes from whether it come from another denomination whether it come from a, a cult from outside it doesn't matter any threat to the gospel we have to stand firm and we have to defend it to be reformed simply means that we are looking at the Bible every single day, that we are reforming our thinking all of the time. You know, if you've never read the 95 Theses, it doesn't even mention predestination. It has nothing to do with that. So many people have this thing in their mind that if we're going to be a reformed Baptist church, church that's all that it's about. It's not about the inner workings of salvation. It's not about predestination. For it's about reforming all of the time. It's about the fact that even though we are a Baptist church, sometimes the SBD, SBC does things in error. They're, they're human. It's okay. I mean, I'm not, I, don't, I don't consider myself a Baptist because I think the SBC is perfect and everything they do is perfect. We just have to be on guard all the time. Most of what they do is good. And helpful and I like it the Baptist faith and message is good and helpful and I like it but if somebody asks you a question why do you believe this and you say well the Baptist faith and message says you've lost your way when somebody asks you why do you believe something you say the Bible says that should be the first words out of your mouth every time I don't want to pick on Baptists, right? It, Presbyterians well the Westminster Confession says that's not that's not what we should be doing we should be looking to Scripture all the time. We should be reforming our thinking. If you believe something to be true, I mean, and I'm the same as you, if you have been shaped by the culture, 
right? We all have. If you're blinded by your sin, if you're shaped by your upbringing, maybe your grandfather gave you some good old boy wisdom, and you start to, you get older and you realize, wait a minute, Papa said this, but the Bible says something opposite. I love my grandpa, but he's not infallible. The Bible is. All of those other documents are man-made, written documents by men. They are inferior to the Bible. Martin Luther started this Reformation idea because the church had lost its way. When we talk about being Reformed Baptist, that's all I mean. I don't know what other people mean. When I, when I say that I'm a Reformed Baptist, that's what I mean. I, I love the Baptist traditions and I love the things that the Baptist church teaches. But if it ever comes in conflict with the Bible, I have to abandon any Baptist tradition or idea that I have so that I can be in line with Scripture. That's all that I mean by that. That's all that Martin Luther meant, right? Once again, he's not writing about the inner workings of salvation. He's saying, I'm going to defend the gospel till my dying day. You guys are probably going to get tired of hearing that. I'm sorry. I, I just, I want you to know that I know that there's conflict, right, within the congregation about this term and about this thing. And I just... I don't want us to think about it the wrong way. The only way I know how to, to, how to help is to teach on it over and over. I think we need to hear things multiple times, right, so that we can hopefully hear and hopefully think about things differently. That's right. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> All right, the next thing we see, right, this very famous verse, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? It's a Roman road. We've heard this hundreds of times. Um, and I was even tempted to be like, oh, yeah, we, we don't need to really talk about it. We all, we've all heard it. But then I thought, fall short of the glory of God. I never really thought about that statement in this idea that that is paired with our sin. So Paul is reminding us of what he has belabored on for several chapters now. He's making it very clear to anybody who is reading this letter and anybody who's reading this book that they are sinful. That they have no goodness in them. There's no righteousness in a person. Apart from Christ, right? It's nothing. No one is righteous. No, not one, right? We looked at this last week. No one understands. No one seeks God. He is belaboring this point, and he brings it back to us, and he puts a little tag on it that he hasn't done yet. And he says, we have fallen short of the glory of God. And the idea is, we were created with a purpose. God created Adam and Eve, several things in mind, right? They're supposed to multiply and fill the earth. They're supposed to tend to the garden. But first and foremost... They're supposed to be giving glory to God. Now, one of those man-made documents that I just sort of gave a little punch to, right? How many of you study the catechism? The first question, right? What is it? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? That's a man-made document. So I think that they're good, and I think that they're helpful, and that's straight from the Bible, right? That is, that is exactly what we are supposed to be doing. But in our sin, we fall short of that. Because in our sin, we're glorifying ourselves, we're glorifying something else on this earth, and we're not glorifying God when we are sinful. And so then the question is, what is God doing about this? It kind of brings us back, right? What, what is God doing about the fact that this is our reality? <clears throat> well, he tells us. He gives us the gift of grace and redemption through Christ. You see, God puts forth his own son as a propitiation for sin. That's not a word we use very often. Simply put, it is the payment for our sins. All that stuff 
that you do, that you think, your desires that are warped and twisted, all of that was laid on the shoulders of Jesus Christ while he was on the cross as payment for our sins. This payment appeases the wrath of God. This is really important, right? This is, it's not that God just looked at your sin and be like, well, I love you, so I'm just going to push that aside. We're, gonna, we're just going to forget that that ever happened. God would be unjust if he did that. If there are sins that are unpaid for, sure, he would be merciful and he would be graceful, but God is also fully just. Those sins have to be paid for. The wrath of God has to be poured out. And instead of pouring it out on you and I, which would completely consume and destroy us and send us to hell for eternity, Jesus steps in and says, I'll take it for you. And he was able. It's really interesting that this is a part of God that we worship. Because I have done lots and lots of evangelism. And one thing that I that I've met with every time that I talk to somebody who is from the Muslim faith, right, because what every other world religion other than Christianity says you, your good deeds need to outweigh your bad deeds or something, right? You better be more good than you are bad, or if you do enough good deeds, you're going to get to heaven. Or, it's, it's all essentially the same variations upon this idea that if you want to get to heaven, you better be good. And so I've talked with Muslims before, and they tell me, that same thing. And this young guy, it was up on Fort Lewis, and he's, he tells me this. And it's like shocked. Like, how, how aren't you, why are you not terrified? Like, what do you mean that, that Allah is going to weigh your good and bad? Do you, do you think you have any hope, any chance? And he looked at me and said, well, he counts my good deeds as 10, and he only counts my bad deeds as one. And I was like, Oh, so you serve a God who is completely unjust. You trust in a God who is completely unjust to do right by you when the day comes. That's, that's what you're telling me. I mean, can you imagine? Somebody kills 10 people, but they helped 100 people. So, well, okay, they did 100 good deeds and only 10 bad deeds. We've got to let them go. We gotta let him free. That's that's nuts. This is crazy. We wouldn't allow that kind of logic or math to operate in any other part of our life. Why would we allow it to operate when we think about God? Every other world religion is broken in this. Even if it's a one for one. Even if somehow you were able to manage a thousand good deeds and only nine hundred bad deeds, in that system, you still deserve punishment and it's not being given. That is an unjust God, not worth our worship, not worth our time, not even worth a thought. But our God is fully just because what does he do with your sin? He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't ignore it. He says, there will be wrath and there will be justice for your sin. But if you believe in Jesus, if you have faith in him, it won't land on you. It lands on Jesus. That is why Christianity is completely and utterly different from every worldview. This is something that I get quite often in my job through the hospital. As a chaplain, I go in and people are in their rooms or in their homes and like, ah, it's just what, what's the big deal? 
It's all the same. Everybody worships the same God. This lady I spoke to on Friday, she gave me the spiel. I've heard it a million times, right? How broken, how, how, how misunderstood are people when they don't recognize that everyone serves an unjust God but us. We serve the God of the Bible who is fully and completely just. And then God does something far beyond that, that this is the part for me that is just, I don't understand it. I don't know how he could do this or why he would do this. Verse 26, sends Jesus as the payment. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God looks at you and he looks at me and all my twisted, evil mess. And he doesn't just forgive me. He doesn't just forgive you. He justifies you. You see the difference? He looks at you and he says, it's as if you didn't even commit those sins because all of those have been laid on Jesus. You see, it would be kind enough if God had just been forgiving. But he goes beyond what we could even comprehend. Because guess what? You've never done that for another human being. And nobody's ever done it to you. You sinned against somebody, they might forgive you, but they never then declare you justified. Yeah, you sinned against me. Yeah, I forgive you. And now I'm also going to declare as if you never did that. I'm going to treat you as if you have never done that sin. That's what God does for us when he justifies us. He goes far beyond anything we could ever imagine or expect or even hope that he would do. He justifies us. And this is another thing that struck me this week is that it doesn't, it's not only that it takes faith to believe in Jesus and to believe in the works that he accomplished on the cross. It actually takes an immense amount of faith to believe that God is telling us the truth when he says this. That he is justifying us. Because we look at ourselves and think, that's not possible. If you walk into a courtroom and somehow they put every thought and everything you have ever done on a screen... And God is sitting in the chair, and then he says, yep, I saw it all, you saw it all, we all saw everything, but because of Jesus, I declare you not guilty. It's, he doesn't say, you're guilty, but it's okay. I love you, I forgive you. He says, you're not guilty, but we just watched it all. We just saw everything I've ever done, and you're telling me that I'm not guilty. It is beyond comprehension. That is the God whom we serve. That is the level of love that he has for us. It is beyond anything. And so then, this last little bit, this is why we should never even be tempted. Right? So then what becomes of boasting? In that situation, imagine yourself walking out of that courtroom. Who would boast? Who could boast? Why would, what kind of backwards, broken thinking would ever boast and be like, ah, did you see that? Not guilty. I did it. What? I mean, what? Like this broken. Nobody would ever in their right mind think it, and yet that's what we do. 
Somehow we allow our brains to twist around and say, did you see that good thing that I did? I did it in the name of Jesus, but did you see that thing that I did? Right? We have that temptation. It's in all of us. When those temptations come, remember, if that scenario helps you, remember, put yourself back in the courtroom, picture yourself back, all of that on the big screen, right? And then remember, I have no room to boast. It is completely excluded. Every good thing I've ever done, said, or thought comes from God, from the Holy Spirit that he gave me. I have done nothing good apart from Jesus. We have no room, no room to boast. problem is that we like to see ourselves as the hero every time we watch those superhero movies every time we see that scene right of the falling person doomed to their death we don't relate to the person falling to their death we relate to the hero the one who swoops in like ah, i could do that if only i could shoot spider webs out of my hand i'd be the hero i'd be the one if i was a multi-billionaire and i could have all the bat stuff i'd be the hero It's human nature. We look at those stories and we relate to the hero. And God is saying, you're the one falling to your death. You're the one who is doomed. And God is the hero. We have absolutely no room for boasting. He's the author of our faith. He is the heroic figure in this story and in the story of our life. And so what do we do? We don't boast, but we go out and we share that. With the world. That's what evangelism is. Share your story about how you were about to go splat on the concrete and God swooped in and saved you when you had no ability to save yourself, when you had no, there was no reason for him to do it, you didn't deserve it, nothing. Share the story of how the hero came into your life and saved you from death. Exhort people to faith in Christ, exhort people to believe on Jesus and to repent. There's a lot of other good things that our church does, right? But the, the focus, that is everything funnels back to that. Our job, our goal as a church, as a Christian, as an individual, as a group of believers here together is to go out into this world and make an impact and to share the love of Christ with everyone that we meet. If we're not doing that, all the rest of the stuff we're doing here is, is no good. That has to be at the foundation. That has to be the reason we are here, so that we can go out, so that we can tell the story. I'll close with this. The reason, the reason that people love fairy tales and have for all of humanity is because it is the story of the gospel. You have a maiden in distress in the tower, and what is trying to kill her? What is trying to consume her? The dragon. And what happens? You have the son of the king, right? It's always the knight. It's always the prince. He comes in, slays the dragon, and rescues the woman. The reason we look at a fairy tale and we love it, it's because it's a story of what Jesus has done for us. If 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 you're thinking, I don't have all the scripture memorized, and I don't know all the right answers, and I don't know how to evangelize, tell them the story of Prince Charming, and and show them how that meets the gospel, right? You don't have to have it all memorized. Go out and evangelize. Tell the people the story of the hero. Tell people what God has done for you, that he has saved you. And don't make it about you, right? Make it about God. He's the hero. We're not.
Let's pray. <coughs> Father God, we love you, and your goodness is so far beyond anything we could ever imagine. I just, I can't, I know me. I know the things I've done. I know the things I've thought. I can't comprehend why you would look at me and declare that I'm justified. My sin is rampant. And Lord, you love me and you forgive and you love everyone in this room, Lord, and the forgiveness that you have is for anyone who repents. And Lord, these truths are, are beyond comprehension. And so all we can do this morning, Lord, is come before you. Ask that you give us deeper faith to believe them more truly and more wholly and more fully. And thank you that they are true. That this is our reality. That you didn't let us fall to our death, but that you swooped in and that you saved us. Lord, we are so undeserving. Lord, help us to be more bold because of it. Because of the truth that we would expound and preach the gospel more often we would share the love of jesus more than we currently are lord there's always opportunities in which we could do this that we've missed whether intentionally or unintentionally lord just help us to keep our minds focused on you so that we can share the story of the hero of you with the world lord you have saved us help us to go and share that we love you we thank you for your word we ask that it would penetrate deep into our hearts, Lord, that we would be convicted, that we would be challenged and encouraged this week because of your words, because of your truth. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.